we're talking about almost 30 years ago, but my memory of this was like you opened up the gate at the horse races and everybody was off to it. And it was just like an explosion. You know, it was non-stop all night long. And if you try to upset the plot, son, you get kicked in the chest like a shotgun. I make the beats and make the breaks and make the rhymes that make you shake, make your fine ice cube never caught in the middle. I make stuff to kick you in the head a little. We just went from one fight to the next fight to the next fight. There was no breathing time. There was no downtime. It was just what emergency is there to go and deal with next. Right now he's planning a front fire that'll kill Gangster rap was the most controversial music of the 90s. Praised as an expression of Black America's righteous anger, reviled for its misogyny and depictions of violence. Taking cues from Schoolie D and Ice-T, Los Angeles group NWA popularized the genre with their album Straight Outta Compton. Their most talented rhymer, Ice Cube, left the group to go solo in 1990. In early 91, he brought his show to Minneapolis's First Avenue for one of its most memorable nights of all time. I'm Cecilia Johnson. This is The Current Rewind, the show putting music's unsung stories on the map. For our second season, we're looking back at one of the Twin Cities and the country's greatest live venues through a series of pivotal nights. We're bringing on guest hosts for several episodes. In this one, Jay Smooth, the New York hip-hop radio legend and cultural commentator, joins us to tell the story of one of the most infamous shows in First Avenue's history. I do want to warn you, this episode contains explicit accounts of racism and violence. Way back in 1991, I founded New York's longest-running hip-hop radio show, WBAI's Underground Railroad. It was a pivotal time for hip-hop music when it was still just beginning to cross all sorts of cultural boundaries. And the other love of my musical life back then was the black Minneapolis sound, as defined by Prince and his many collaborators, who in their own way were on a similar path of bringing black music into spaces where it hadn't necessarily been all that welcome. So as a devoted student of Prince and hip-hop who came of age in that era, the First Avenue Club and its relationship with black music and hip-hop specifically has always been an object of fascination for me. And though it was primarily defined as a rock club, First Avenue did host a number of high-profile hip-hop shows in the 80s and early 90s, according to someone who saw a lot of them. Timothy Wilson, Urban Lights Music owner. Tim's record store, Urban Lights, is a community hub in the Midway neighborhood of St. Paul. I remember seeing Run DMC. I remember they had Jam Master J kind of suspended in the air, uh, swinging back and forth, and... They couldn't jump around on the stage because the records were skipping and stuff like that, but they still made it through. I remember going to KRS-One. The sound crashed, and he literally had one of his people beatbox, and he continued to perform. 
On top of the big names from out of state, Minnesotan hip-hop acts the Micronauts and the IRM crew sometimes performed in First Avenue's smaller room, the 7th Street Entry. Still, it would take a while for the club's overall attitude to change from what sound engineer Randy Hawkins in Chris Riemenschneider's book First Avenue, Minnesota's Main Room called, quote, anti-rap. The non-white population of Minneapolis grew nearly 70% during the 80s, but hip-hop took longer to bloom in the Twin Cities than on the coasts, partly because the success of Prince, The Time, and Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis made funk the sound du jour there in the 80s. One of First Avenue's most successful dance nights was More Funk, every Thursday with the club's longtime DJ, Roy Freedom. Prince and Jimmy Jam would sometimes bring test pressings for the occasion. Tim Wilson also DJed there. You know, it was just dance. It was disco, funk, rap, kind of all mixed up into one hodgepodge. It was just a little bit of hip-hop at that time because, you know, rap just hadn't really... You know, it hadn't really captured the imagination of the world, let's say it like that. You know, it wasn't the Wall Street darling that it is today. So it was a, a record here, a record there, but it was just a lot of Minneapolis sound stuff. You know, of course, you would get a lot of Prince and people like Andre Simone, um, the girls, Tamara in the scene, Alexander O'Neill. More funk with Roy Freedom. We used to call it more fights with Roy Freedom. <laughs> Dan Corrigan has been First Avenue's official photographer since 1995. These clips are from a 2003 interview he did with Pete Schultes of City Pages. There's one night, there's the biggest fight I've ever seen down there. It was just crazy. Started on the dance floor and kind of went around the right and spilled all the way out to the entryway. That brawl took place in 1990 during Moore Funk's fifth anniversary. Randy Hawkins told our writer Michelangelo Matos about that night. The fifth anniversary of Funk Night. It was a similar situation of losing control of the club. There was a few times where it's like, oh, we've lost control of this. Now, this kind of thing didn't happen very often. One reason for that is First Avenue's security system. There's like a a light switch at various locations throughout the club, like emergency buttons you press if something goes wrong. Sabrina Keith was a bartender, stagehand, and super glue employee of First Avenue, working on and off from 1988 to 2004. And you flip the switch, and let's see. Upstairs, a central light goes on. It's like a siren light, a red siren light. And then um, I think at the front door, there might be one as well. And then you look over to the side um, of the stage, and there's many lights of many different colors. And hopefully just one of them will be spinning, and that would be, that gives you an idea of where the trouble is. And actually, just the other day, me and another old employee were talking and can remember pretty much where all the trouble lights are. It's really disturbing. I shouldn't, I shouldn't know that green means pool tables, which means it's by where the current co-check is and no more pool tables. <laughs> the origin of the so-called trouble lights is still fresh in Richard Luca's mind. He had been recruited to work security in 1975 when the club was still called Uncle Sam's. You may remember him from the Ramones and Pat Benatar episode earlier this season. Richard spoke with our producer, Cecilia, and First Avenue's longtime general manager, Steve McClellan. The reason for that light was that um, in March of 1977, I was working alone. We had purged a lot of people out of there at that time. 
uh, there was all this new staff. They really didn't know anything. And I was all alone at the front door with a cashier. And, and a bike gang came to the door. Uh, the Iron Cross from northern Minnesota. And I had to card these guys. And I thought, oh, my God, I can't. What am I going to do here? And uh, I just, you know, there's like six of them. I just said, well... I guess I'm letting them in, you know, and it turns out a few more came in. So we had like nine bikers in there who took their, their coats off. They were flying their colors in there. And what show was it? This, no, this was a, a, like a Saturday night in 1977. And I remember one of our regular customers, a guy named Tiger, he was black and he had a shaved head. And these guys surrounded him. They were rubbing his head saying, I wish I had a watermelon. And, it was like, and I was like, oh, my God, this is going to get out of hand. And at the end of the night, they, you know, they were just rude and belligerent to people. And he came up and he said, what on earth did you let them in here for? I go like, I was going to get this beat out of me it's like look i'm up here all alone and they, they said okay we're putting a light in okay so they install this light and a year later i you know, the bike gang came back <laughs> but we had hired all new staff we had some bigger people there then and i hit that light and people were right there and these guys they threw their jackets off and they were ready to go and the police showed up and so, oh, and so that is what that is what can happen at the front door. You you never knew what was going to show up there. Oh, the first light that he's talking about, my brother Kevin installed. When did we put in the different colors? So if it was the game room, it would go off green. Okay. And when it was... Yeah. Uh, it was like 1983, I'm going to say. Yeah, that much later. Yeah, the first one was 77, 78. And that was sufficient. And then we had to do a system that people wouldn't go to the front door. They would go to the game area, the upstairs or bar five. So we had like a six-light sequence that would go off. Along with the trouble lights, the seriousness of First Avenue security earned it a reputation in town, according to Tim Wilson. People go through the usual First Ave bull****. When you go to First Ave, you know, they look at your license and turn it upside down and flip it and flop it, pat you down, and you walk in. You know, again, it was always one of those things like, oh, man, don't go to First Ave with a fake ID. Don't try to sneak in First Avenue. Their security doesn't play. You know, still the same thing. I'm, You know, people get turned away. One point that was always made kind of clear at First Avenue was we're not bouncers. And we don't ever want to be called bouncers. We're security. We're just trying to make things better. We don't want to bounce you. We don't want to be mean to you. We don't want to beat you up. We just want you to have fun. And I've never understood why people go out and don't have fun. It's like, well, why are you starting stuff? You paid however much money to get in here. So have fun. Whether you kick them out or whether you put them back, it's up to how they act. I mean, I had one kid come up to me five years after the fact saying, oh, my God, it's you. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, you kicked me out of Nine Inch Nails. I'm like, okay. (laughs) I'm glad that was a great memory for you. (laughs) The club's security staff have long been trained to de-escalate situations, according to a longtime staffer. My name is Anne O'Connor. I worked at First Avenue for two different time periods in the 1990s. I mean, de-escalation can work in any setting. You know, it really can. You have to keep your head. You know, my strategy was always to get in between the people who were really upset because they almost would never go after me. And so that would at least create some space. When people are hot-headed, a lot of times all they really need is to just step back for a second and say, wait a minute, 
What do I really want to do this? And that's the kind of thing that we would say. And sometimes that didn't work at all. In February of 1991, First Avenue hosted one of its occasional rap shows, Ice-T, the revolutionary Los Angeles MC with sharp storytelling and a steely voice. That show was one of two he'd perform in Minnesota that year. He also came through St. Paul's Harriet Island on the Lollapalooza tour. And each time, Ice-T didn't just rap. He sang with an all-black metal band called Body Count. Sabrina Keith told Michelangelo about hanging out with that group. It was just fun because it was iced tea and he was doing metal, which like with Body Count, there's just not a lot of black artists doing that. We had Blake working at the club, who's like basically the exact same thing, just not, you know, iced tea. And so it was fun. It's novel. It's just a bunch of big guys and they had really cool merch and they wanted like our first 70 jackets because we were all wearing it. I think it was cold then too. So February. Um, yep, yeah, that cold. <laughs> Ice-T and Body Count would see more than their share of controversy a year later, in 1992, when they released the song Cop Killer. But in 1991, there was no more controversial figure in rap or in music than Ice Cube. He'd been the primary lyricist for N.W.A., who had debuted in 1989 with the iconic album Straight Outta Compton. Soon afterward, the FBI sent a letter to N.W.A.'s record label to complain about the lyrics of songs such as F the Police, lyrics that had been mostly written by Ice Cube, who was only 20 years old. But Cube felt like he wasn't getting his fair share of royalties, so in 1990, he and his friend and producer Sir Jinx went to New York to collaborate with the hottest producers of the time, the Bomb Squad. The Bomb Squad, featuring Hank Shockley, Chuck D., and Eric Sadler, were Public Enemy's sample heavy production team. With their help, Ice Cube finished his first solo album, America's Most Wanted, and released it in May of 1990. He followed it with the Kill at Will EP in December. No rapper was hotter right then, as Tim Wilson recalls. That was good, Ice Cube. Uh, America's Most Wanted... You know, one of my top five albums of all time. He left N.W.A., got politically conscious, and then it was just the whole thing with the group and the breakup. And then he went out east and hung out with Chuck D. and, you know, Public Enemy, and, and they produced that album. And, and it was just, it was a hot album at that particular time. That particular album bridged gangster rap and uh politically conscious material all into one project. You know, he was gassed up and ready to go. Ice Cube didn't lead a lifestyle as violent as his lyrics would suggest. Like a lot of rappers, he'd rhyme in character. But some of his fans did carry the things he rapped about carrying, as John Smith, who would join the First Avenue staff in 1993 and is still a DJ and bartender at the club, would discover. First Avenue started using metal detectors. You know, when you saw the metal detectors, it wasn't, oh, this is a new thing they're doing. It's like, oh, Ice Cube is coming. And then earlier that week before the show, I was at Northern Lights Records, and I overheard some clerks talking about how they had overheard 
some kids talking about trying to stash some guns in First Avenue before the Ice Cube show so that they would circumvent the metal detectors. Those were the people who first made it apparent to me that this was not going to be business as usual. Because we weren't a Ticketmaster club, if you wanted to buy tickets for a First Avenue show, you had to go someplace and buy them. I think the Ice Cube crowd was a crowd that didn't necessarily know where to buy our tickets. So it was kind of that, where we realized this isn't just going to be shiny, happy hipsters going to a rap show. This is going to be real. And O'Connor worked roaming security that night. As the staff, we would get together and we would talk about what we were going to do. And then what ended up happening is we hired in a bunch of uh, extra additional security people. For about a week before the shows, we had metal detectors at the door so that people couldn't bring guns or knives or anything in and stash them in the club so that they could use them during the shows themselves. You know, these were guys who, who their show was about raising people's anger about some really unfair situations, about, you know, calling out some uh, some things that were really wrong. And so people had a tendency to get pissed. So we knew that, and we had to uh, be ready for that. And the Ice-T show, I, I feel like we managed to do that without huge problems. We didn't have huge problems that night. When you put together, you know... People with loud music, lots of drinking, and lots of young people dancing, body contact. You're, you're really just setting a stage for some conflict. There's going to be some conflict sometime. Ice Cube's March 4th appearance was, in fact, two shows. An all-ages in the late afternoon and an ID-only show at night. This was a regular occurrence at the club throughout the 90s. I know for the first show I did coat check. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty mellow. Um, Everybody thought the kids' show was going to be bad, and it just was not. There was one issue during the all-ages show. Somebody threw a bottle over the upstairs balcony where alcohol was allowed. When Ice Cube finished the first show, the club took two hours to change over. You have to clean up and kind of reset everything to start the night fresh. I think they bought us pizza, and we just kind of hung out and waited. Rod Smith was barbacking that night running liquor from storage to the bars. The attendance at the All Ages show was healthy, but nowhere near sold out. At the ID show, attendance was sold out plus. I believe you've encountered the phenomenon where somebody in the office would panic about ticket sales and just start, like, slamming comps out indiscriminately. A ton of comps had gone out, and then a ton of people paid. So attendance... <laughs> was way over the top. We got there for the ID show. Uh, we walk in. First thing we figured out pretty quick was we weren't going to get any help because anything anything with a counter, whether it was a bar, whether it was coat check, they were busy. It was packed, it was full, and there were people yelling. Uh, there were people who were not happy with the order that they were being helped. There were people who were not happy with the prices. There were just a lot of not happy people. It was wet outside and it was hot in there, which made it hot and wet, like a, like a cave. The walls were sweating. The, the men's room had an inch of water going on in, on the floor. It was a bad vibe. Our sources couldn't pick out one specific point where the fight started. But according to Anne, once they started, 
they didn't stop. It was bam, bam, bam. It was just nonstop. So you didn't really have time to stop and think, wow, this is really overwhelming. I I don't know if I can do it. You just did it. The place was packed. There were so many people there. So if you were, if you couldn't get to the trouble light, uh, that's one thing. But also if the trouble light was already going, you you would have a fight five feet away from you. Well, five feet in a packed room could be, it's a lot of feet to get to sometimes, (laughs) you know, to get through the bodies and get to the actual fight you're not always going to make it. See, the melees would just randomly break out. The, the outside security people that First Avenue hired did an outstanding job because they were, they were really aware of what was going on mood-wise in the club. And as soon as something broke out, they would start heading toward it. But, again, the problem being, you know, there's a certain amount of distance in the main room. And when the club is that packed, you can't move that quickly. They were moving pretty quickly, though. So, I mean, these, these bites were being stopped, for the most part, like, pretty quickly after they started. But there but were just they a didn't lot. Really stop. And so they continued pretty much through the night. As a customer, I knew about the trouble lights, and I had seen them go off in the past. I had never seen all of them go off at the same time. I believe there were 27 all total. And there were incidents that, that didn't even prompt a trouble light because... Nobody could get to a trouble light because the club was that packed. Randy Hawkins worked the barricade in front of the stage for both shows. There's three of us, four of us total in the barricade. And we had to stay there unless the situation was right in front of you on the floor, of which there were many. And we did what we could from the inside the barricade, but mostly the roaming security of people on the dance floor dealt with that stuff. And so it was like, it turned into a pretty serious us against them scenario like as far as security versus the audience, which you never want to get in that situation. But every time a door got opened, there'd be three people trying to bum rush the show. But every time like a side door or anything got opened to let someone in, you had to have security at each one and you basically just had to defend the castle. It's kind of the same way with the, with the barricade and every bar, you know, just people trying to take everything you could take. Yeah, it was all sorts of just grab whatever booze you can grab. I encountered bartenders and barbacks crying back by the coolers. And that happened multiple times. The barbacks because they'd been sucker bunched, and the bartender because people kept... I mean, there were some real bowers there. And they tipped really well. But then these wannabes would come along and steal the big tips that somebody else had just left. And it was so busy that it was impossible for the bartenders to really keep track of what was happening with their tips. You know, we called the cops several times. We, we, we carted several people out to the cops. When you are in a fight at First Avenue, what ends up happening is you get surrounded by staff. and Quickly. Quickly. And so you know, like, there's nowhere to go. But the cops weren't particularly soothing that night or any other. In fact, just the night before, on March 3rd, 1991... A Los Angeles motorist named Rodney King was pulled over and beaten mercilessly by the LAPD. A man with a camcorder filmed the incident and sent it to a local TV news show. The Rodney King video wasn't yet national news when Ice Cube played First Avenue. That would be in a few days still. But for most people at the show, police brutality wasn't just something they heard about in rap songs. Chances were... Many of Ice Cube's fans knew someone it had happened to if they hadn't experienced it personally. 
What I would say is that there were a lot of people who had valid reasons for being upset. And this was a place for them to have that upset. And sometimes that upset meant that they wanted to hurt someone. And so I'm not, I'm not justifying the behavior or excusing it, or, but I'm just saying it was not a big surprise. When I say nobody got seriously hurt, I mean like broken bones or, you know, injures, injuries that... Hospital injuries. Hospital injuries. It was a rough night. It was a very violent show. So I don't want to underplay that. Urban Lights owner Tim Wilson was in the audience that night. And he remembers seeing an opening group that included a rapper who would top the pop charts four years later. I remember a group called WC in the Mad Circle, which was one of Ice Cube's group. Dub uh, C, who still tours with Cube. Mm-hmm. Um, and Coolio was actually part of the group at that time. Uh, Crazy Tunes was the DJ, uh, which was Dub C's brother. I remember they kept having sound problems. And they kept telling the sound guy, like, man, you better fix this or we're going to have a problem. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they would keep rapping, keep doing their thing, and then they would warn him again, and then the sound never changed. I think they warned him a third time. And honestly, what I remember is them jumping off the stage, breezing past us, and I remember... I never understood why First Ave set their soundboard. They have those steps that go down, and then they set their soundboard where, unfortunately, the way he kind of got jumped on, he ended up down in the crevice at the bottom of the stairs and where the soundboard started. And they, you know, they were stopped, they were kicking him and hitting him until they got pulled off and back onto the stage, and they just kind of shot past us jumped on him. Then they jumped back on stage and they kept rapping and the sound man, you know, wiped the blood off his face and he just kept going. DJ Smitty, who couldn't get into the Sonic Youth concert last episode, did make it in the door for Ice Cube. He says the mood perked up when the headliner took the stage. People never talk about the fact that was a great show. Ice Cube, I'd go see him again in a heartbeat. One of the best hip-hop shows I've ever seen. But a friend of mine did get close enough to the stage to see the set list and came back and said, we're going. We're two songs away from the encore. Let's get out of here. And as we left, I had to hold the door open because they were stretching someone out. All I know is it was hateful because you you got 1,500 people in the room. You could have 50 security staff. You don't stand a chance. There were so many people ready to quit after some of these shows. Ann O'Connor was one of them. I put my notice in shortly after the Ice Cube show. I remember thinking that is a kind of violence that I don't need to be a part of. And uh, I love the club. I love the people I worked with. It was a lot of fun, but that wasn't fun for me. A lot of people were really bummed out. I had quit smoking eight months earlier, and I started again that night. The mood overall was, we got through it. A few people were traumatized. We were worn out, and it was hard. And I remember um, everyone feeling pretty 
pretty rough at that point. It was pretty rough. The show also got First Avenue in trouble with the city, not for the first time. I had too many incidents where the police wouldn't respond when I would book a, a gangster rap. And I used to go to monthly downtown, uh, what do they call them, downtown association meetings or something, where I'd go and I'd sit. And when you went to these meetings, and if you were a nightclub, the fire department was there to tell you exactly what you do to keep your license. The police department would be there monthly and tell you exactly what you need to do to keep your license. They were more like, this meeting isn't to ask questions. We're the city, and you're going to do what we tell you. Despite the complaints about gangster rap, the next First Avenue show that it sees similar violence was a 1995 appearance by a singer-songwriter whose politics could not have been further removed from Ice Cubes. There's a country singer. Um, oh, my God. What's his name? Outlaw country singer. David Allen Coe. At the time, that was show two that had as many problems as Ice Cube. The David Allen Coe show, I think it's, it wasn't as well attended. I got probably, there's probably 800 people there. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think I ever really lost control of it, but it was definitely getting there. I came in the next day and it was like, just shell shocks. <laughs> it's like, you will not believe what we were dealing with last night. Chris Schneider, author and longtime music reporter at the Star Tribune, suggests that the Ice Cube show is remembered as a turning point. The biggest myth about that show, well, I don't know if it's a myth, but um, I mean, supposedly that show is, hip-hop was not booked at that venue for for many years after that show because it got so ugly and, and they, they generalized over, well, hip-hop audiences are, are bad news. When we asked Steve McClellan and Leanne Weimar whether First Avenue avoided hip-hop after Ice Cube, Steve said that he still booked rappers through agents he trusted. There was a lot of drug dealers that were trying to bring me shows because they had connections with the agent, and they wanted to bring in a lot of these hip-hop acts. Or they had beepers, remember they that? Had be- I called them the beeper phone mm-hmm. promoters. Yep. In the 90s, I stopped dealing with beeper phone promoters that had plenty of cash but uh, no trust for me. Steve returned to this point several times throughout the interview, insisting that if there was a lapse in hip-hop shows, it was only because he didn't want to work with so-called beeper phone promoters. Whatever the case, First Avenue generally avoided hip-hop until the late 90s, according to Chris Schneider. It really was until Grimesayers and, and Atmosphere came along and started back in the place that they started giving hip-hop a, a, a good chance there again. Nationally, hip-hop had been ebbing into the mainstream for years. In Minnesota, indie label Rhymesayers capitalized on that shift. In the late 90s, they started throwing Soundset Wednesdays, a series of hip-hop dance nights at First Avenue, and their audiences trended whiter and whiter. At the same time, First Avenue opened the gates to touring acts such as OutKast, Eminem, Public Enemy, and the Black Eyed Peas. Okay, so this episode was a whopper. And I think the material of this episode is still so relevant today. At this point, I want to bring up an article that rocked Minnesota music in 2016. Like, I still remember the day that it came out, reading it at my desk. 
It's the Twin Cities Daily Planet's piece, Whitest Hip Hop Scene You've Ever Heard Of, written by Kayla Steinberg, and it speaks directly to the aftershocks of the Ice Cube show. I'm just going to read a few somewhat abridged sentences. Quote, When out-of-state and mainstream media and fans refer to Twin Cities hip-hop, Rhymesayers Entertainment is often their point of reference. The common faces of Rhymesayers include Brother Ali, an albino Muslim rapper who identifies as white, and Atmosphere, a duo of racially ambiguous, arguably white-passing hip-hop artists. However, to Toki Wright, a black North Minneapolis rapper, these are just a couple faces of the Twin Cities hip-hop scene. I think the face of Twin Cities hip-hop is a 14-year-old kid on the north side of Minneapolis in his bedroom, making beats or writing rhymes, he said. The face of Twin Cities hip-hop is Lexi Alger recording with Kehlani and the local press turning a blind eye to it. That's Twin Cities hip-hop. Unquote. Later in the article, Black rapper Mally talks about his experience at the Rhymesayers 20th anniversary show in 2015. The way he remembers it, many audience members went from supportive when white artist Brother Ali rapped his song Dear Black Son to apathetic when Toki Wright and I Self Divine, both black rappers, proclaim messages such as F the police and kill white supremacy on stage. Some things haven't changed between 91 and now, but First Avenue has undergone a monumental shift in the way they operate, what causes they stand for, and whose names are at the top. It's all covered in our next episode, which is about Election Day in 2004, the day First Avenue declared bankruptcy. This episode of The Current Rewind was hosted by the one and only Jay Smooth and me, Cecilia Johnson. It was produced by me and Jesse Weiza and scripted by our head writer, Michelangelo Matos. Marisa Morseth is our research assistant and Jay Gabler is our editor. Our theme music is the song Hive Sound by Ice Tep. This episode was mixed by Johnny Vince Evans. And I want to give a super special thank you to Rick Carlson, Shelby Sachs, David Safar, Pete Schultes, and Chris Wilburn for additional support. If you want to check out a transcript of this episode or any other one, you can go to thecurrent.org slash rewind. And if you feel so moved, uh, you can go ahead and rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or tell a friend that it's out there. If you want to share any thoughts or feedback or First Avenue stories, our inbox is open. You can just send an email to rewind at thecurrent.org. The Current Rewind is made possible in part by the Minnesota Legacy Amendments Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. It is a production of Minnesota Public Radio's The Current. <laughs>